Hey, y'all, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get rolling. Doug Brown's here. We can start now. <laughs> hey, just to uh, make sure everybody's in the right place, because I know some folks have gotten confused on the rooms, this is turning... Uh, Turning Sessions into Spiritual Communities. My name is Doug Ressler. I'm a um, senior pastor there at Pepsi. Uh, across the hall in 207 is Brandon Addison, and they're doing Forming Leaders for Life in the World. And then Bill Dudley is around the corner in 212. So if you're in the right place, great. If you need to get up now and go do that, that's fine. We won't shame you too much. Um, but we're glad you're here. And uh, yeah, just grateful for your interest in this. And hopefully it's a fruitful time together. So let me, let me open us just with a word of prayer, and we'll get rolling. So, Father, thank you for this time. Uh, thank you for the opportunity we have as leaders in your church to really uh, seek the mind of Christ together and think about what it means for us to do that uh, in, in our individual congregations and um, as, as uh, ruling elders, as teaching elders and the roles that you've entrusted to, to us, God. We pray that you would really inspire us in, in this time and, and help us really help one another. And uh, we look forward, God, just to following the lead of your spirit. Um, as we dig in together. And so, Lord, we thank you for these things, and we pray them in the name of Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Awesome. Hey, how many of you here are teaching elders like me? Awesome. And how many folks are ruling elders? The rest of you, of course. Good. How many of you, like, have no status at all, Will Freischlag? <laughs> a few. A few no status, right? That's awesome. Um, we are, uh, again, we are, what we're talking about here is how to, how to take your session and leverage that time in such a way that you really become spiritual community. Like, what does that look like? There was actually a book written, I don't know, probably a long, long time, time ago, basically with this title. I can't remember, the, can't remember uh, who the author was off the top of my head, but that, that was that book and some others about 20, 20, 25 years ago that got me first interested in this subject. Because if you're like me, um, so many uh, session meetings uh, I was a part of as, you know, as I was sort of getting into the church and kind of getting into leadership of the church before I became a pastor, um, man, it just, it just really felt like they were long and you know, boring, and um, I didn't qu quite know what to do with Robert's Rules of Order back then, and like all of those kinds of things, and so really struggled, and it felt like after it was all said and done, like people like wanted to get out of there as soon as possible, and you know, when they would, given the opportunity to rotate off session, they would jump off session as soon as they could, and so maybe, some of that may be familiar to you, or maybe not, but um, so I, I was like, well, surely there's got to be a different way, and there's got to be a better way, um, and of course, uh, in the EPC, when we uh, ordain ruling and teaching elders, and we get together as a session, our first responsibility is what? Seek the mind of Christ, right? Okay, if you don't know that, like, you need better training, um, and uh, we'll let your pastor do that or what have you. So yeah, it really is to seek the mind of Christ. And so um, let me get to the slide I wanted here. Not this one, this one. Um, this is right out of government, Book of Government 9.8. Um, the first duty of the ruling elder is to represent the mind of Christ as that a person understands it in the various courts of the church. And of course, the first court of the church is the session. That's a lot of formal language. But in essence, what we're talking about here is how do we do that? What does it actually look like? And so, what is the mind of Christ? I mean, if we're supposed to seek it, the first question we have to ask is, what is it? Um, and here, I think, you know, Scripture is pretty clear. Uh, if you go to passages like John 17, for instance, where Jesus is praying for his church. And what does he pray in the, in the, in the context of John 17? Anybody know? Unity. unity, right? He prays for the unity of the church. He's like, he prays to his Father, Father, let, let them be one as, as you and I are one. And so the same oneness that the Father has with the Son uh, is the same oneness he desires for us to have, uh, again, as, as a body, as a session. And so um, fundamentally, the, it seems to me the mind of Christ, first of all, is unified. It's not going to be divided. All right, that has implications, I think, for how we make, we'll get into some of this in a little bit, but it, I think that has implications for how we make decisions. You know, I think that has implications for whether there are winners and losers around the table or whether there's a consensus that grows that really is spirit-filled and spirit-led and spirit-formed because Christ is not divided against himself. So I think, I think there's unity there in the mind of Christ. There's also Philippians 2, 5 through 11. What's that passage about? Have the same mind that is among yourselves in Christ Jesus, right? What's it about? Humility, humility right? So I think humility is another key part of having the mind of Christ. Um, so if you're going to seek the mind of Christ, you've got to identify what the mind of Christ is. You've got to know what the mind of Christ is so that as you're seeking it, you're, you're seeking it in the way of Christ. All right? I, don't think you just, I don't think you arrive there by any means. I think you arrive there by uh, the means that God 
provides. And so we're going to talk about a few of those uh, things today. Um, and uh, well, some other uh, things along the way like prayer. What's the role of prayer? What's the role of Bible study? All of those kinds of things. Just to kind of give you a quick intro on me. My name is Doug Ressler. Again, um, I am the senior pastor at Parker Evangelical Presbyterian Church just south of here, about 20 minutes or so. And um, I've been the senior pastor there for about 10 years. Before that, I was in the PCUSA doing church planning work in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, that was... Uh, we were there for about two years, worst two years of my life. If you want to have coffee, we can talk about that. I am terrible at church planning, so don't ask me anything about church planning. I'll tell you how not to do it, all right, how to totally screw it up, you know, makes it, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, before that, I was in Mobile, Alabama, as well with the PCUSA at a very small church of about 80 folks for about six years, and we were field testing a lot of the concepts you're going to hear today. Great stuff happened in that church at Mobile. It's amazing just to be part of that ministry, and that was right out of seminary. I went to Princeton for seminary. While I was in seminary, I did work with um, Hamilton Square Presbyterian Church, intern there, and was there for a couple of years. Again, just beginning this conversation. Um, that's where kind of it all started for me. And I also did prison ministry while I was there. So I've done a lot of things over the last, I don't know, 20 or so years. Um, and been able to field test a lot of this stuff in a lot of different contexts. And so some of you may be pastors or ruling elders of small churches, and you're wondering, how does this apply? Um, some of you may be pastors and ruling elders of very large churches or somewhere in between. Pepsi's more in between. Um, I think this is scalable to really any, um, any size church. It's really just a matter of how you want to organize yourselves as a session and is the, is the number one goal of getting together, again, seeking the mind of Christ for your community, or is it something else? And if it's something else, again, I think you have to wrestle with that. And why is that? What is it we're really, what's our role that we really have to function here? And I do a lot of consulting work with churches. And I will tell you that one of the common, one of the most common things I run into as I sit down with churches, especially churches that struggle with revitalization, is uh, it's because their session doesn't really know why they're getting together. They, they, they assume it's just sort of to keep the lights on. Well, it's got to be a whole lot more than that. And so, um, so anyway, so that's, that's a part of the deal. Uh, do we have more chairs? We've got, we've got a couple of chairs down front. I know we're Presbyterians, so we don't ever sit down front, but, um, or at least we don't in my church, but y'all can come on down here. No? Okay. Of course not. That's right. Okay. That's cool. Um, anyway, so those are the, some of the things we're going to talk about today, um, and, and engage around those things. And the way I do, the way I do these kinds of things, feel free to jump in, ask questions, stop me at any point in time. Happy to Happy to take questions, and I'm going to leave a lot of time for some questions and answers as well. So as you're going along, if you want to write down stuff that you want to talk about, we can talk about it here, we can talk about it afterwards, whatever. I'm available for you. Um, this session will be taught a second time, you know, at like starting at 3 or whatever. So we're going to do this session twice today. So, you know, anyway, so just so you guys are aware of that, kind of set up all the, the ground rules. So again, how do we seek the mind of Christ? We know the mind of Christ from Scripture. It's, again, a, a desire for unity for His church, John 17. It's a desire for humility for His church, Philippians 2. Um, uh, so, so it seems to me that part and parcel of this experience that we have as, um, as, as a session, as a, as a community of elders, is going to involve some spiritual disciplines. Because I don't know any other way to get to unity, and I don't know any other way to get to humility. So just some questions to think about as we're, getting, as we're kind of getting started here. Um, what role does prayer play in your session meetings? What role, that's worth thinking about. What role does prayer play? I mean, if we're there to seek the mind of Christ, then surely prayer should be at the heart of what we do because it's only in prayer that He is going to talk to us. <laughs> and hopefully your time of prayer involves some silence to let Him speak to you. Right? Not just sort of us talking to him. I mean, that's good too, but I mean, we, we need to create some silent time in there to let the Lord speak to us. What role does the Bible play? All right? Because, again, God speaks to us primarily through his word. And so, if we're to be guided, especially in our decision making and some of the, the, the challenging things, especially that we're facing as a culture or as we engage our culture, man, we need to be guided by his word. We need to know what the Lord has to say about these different things. And so, you've got to think about what role does the Bible play? How long are your meetings? I mean, how, does it, how long does it take to hear the mind of Christ together? I don't know. I don't know if there's a right or wrong there, but, but how long are your meetings? Again, does your session, um, can they, they, they sort of like want to meet for as little time as possible so they can get out of there and go on home? When they, when they rotate on and off, do they, do they kind of think of their time on session as a prison sentence or do they see it as one of the most life-giving times they've ever had spiritually? I'll tell you that one of the ways that I'm evaluated as a senior pastor, and this is by design, I tell the el my elders this all the time, if 
in their time on session, they have not had the most significant time of spiritual growth in their lives, and they need to ask why I'm the senior pastor. They need to, ask, they need to be asking that question. All right, because I'm not doing what I should be doing. If those folks aren't growing, how, how in the world is the church growing? So that's something that they evaluate me on, and they, we talk about it quite a bit, you know, and is their time on session a time of great spiritual growth? So how long does that take? What, what does that mean? How do you guys organize yourselves? Again, what's the goal of your meeting? What are you trying to, what are you trying to do? How do you determine success? Like, what's a successful meeting look like? What's a successful time together look like? What are you trying to accomplish? And these are, these are questions I find that, like a, again, a lot of sessions, they don't ask. They sort of get into the mechanics of running the church without ever pausing to really stop and say, well, like, where's all this headed, all this activity, all these decisions that we're making, all these things that we're doing? Um, we're not just here to keep the machinery in operation. How do you handle conflict? What happens when you have a, a, a decision that may be controversial or maybe a challenge? Maybe you have people of different opinions. Maybe they're very passionate about their opinions. How do you handle conflict? How do you, how do you create an, an environment where conflict is expected? Like that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. We're not trying to avoid it. It's a good thing. We want, we want folks to really engage honestly with one another. How do you create an environment where that can take place? And then again, what's your decision-making matrix? Do you use parliamentary procedure? Is it up-down? Is it majority rules? Is it a more consensus model? Like All of these are like pretty basic, practical considerations that have to be out there on the table when you start to think about shaping a, a time in session, you know, again, so that we might grow as a spiritual community. All of these things relate. It's not like you do spiritual stuff and then you do the other stuff. I, I, hopefully we all understand that. There, there, there is no sort of sacred stuff that we do and then secular stuff that we do. No, it's all sacred. It's all under the Lord's leading and guiding. And so everything that we do should really flow from our understanding of who He is and what He wants for us and who we are made in His image and, and what He wants for His church, what He wants for His bride, what He wants for His body. And there may be other uh, factors to consider as well in your particular context that you want to you know, kind of put onto the table. But I know for us, these are some of the things that, that, that I think about as I'm setting the agenda, as I'm trying to think about what's it going to be like for our group this year to grow spiritually. What's that going to take? Where are we going to need to go? What do we need to, what do we need to be doing? All right, are there other things that you would want to add to this? Anyone want to jump in here? Everybody's too shy. All right, that's cool. Um, All right. Well, Doug, I've got a question. Yeah, go ahead, Ken. So you say if if, uh, if their uh -huh. term on the session isn't the most spiritually mm -hmm. growing time for them, yeah. I guess, and my thought is, is they've come to the session already mm -hmm. spiritually uh, strong and yep. equipped and ready, meaning the First Timothy 3. Sure. So uh, say, say a little bit more about that in terms of... Um, is that a pretty high bar that you've set? Yeah. Yeah, we've set a pretty high bar. Okay. Um, I've got some ruling elders in the room. I think uh, Jim Levine, we'd set a pretty high bar, don't you think? And, and then it only goes higher as you come on session. You're only challenged to go further and deeper and more and more upwards into Christ. Again, if your leaders, if your leaders are not growing spiritually, then I think it's, it's, a, it's a real open question whether the rest of your congregation is. Um, and so you have to, I think, as a, if you're the, in your case, Ken, you're the moderator, I'm the moderator, right, as the teaching elder, I think we really have to challenge ourselves to, to I mean, that, that's like probably our most primary work is to really challenge ourselves to, to, to be taking this group of people that God has brought together, some of our most spiritually mature, uh, spiritually on fire folks, and, and keep stoking that. And keep taking them deeper and deeper and deeper into Christ. And challenging them with the material that we're putting in front of them. And, and um, as we're leading them in Scripture and some of those kinds of things. Yeah, it's, it's got to keep going. I don't know how many of you are uh, familiar with St. Benedict's rule. But um, I remember just a, a great line out of there that has really shaped how I do preaching and leadership and some of those kinds of things. Benedict, when he was giving advice to his the abbots of the monasteries that you know, were underneath his authority, he said um, to the abbot, he said, you've got to give the strong something to aspire to and the weak nothing to run from. And so you've got to give the strong something to aspire to and the weak nothing to run from. And so I think, particularly around a session table, although they're, they're going to be in different places too, per se, but, but particularly around the, the, that session table, you've got to give your strong something to aspire to. 
And you got to keep pushing them, and you got to keep you you got to keep leading them. You got to keep, and you got to keep growing yourself, of course. As as that's a huge piece of this. But but I think that that's yeah, that's a big a big piece of it. So it's a huge challenge. I don't I, I don't assume, and I don't think we can assume, and I don't think we should assume, and we probably too often assume that because they're sitting in that room, they don't need some of this. And I actually think a lot of ruling elders come in assuming that. I don't need this. I'm actually here. I've actually, I remember when I first field tested this at Overlook down in Mobile, my elders really struggled initially because they were like, look, we, we're here because we get all of this. Now let's just do the business of the church. Okay? And, and I had to hold the line with them and say, well, that's true. You are some of our more spiritually mature folks, but we got to keep growing. And so this is our business. Prayer is our business. Studying the Bible is our business. This is the only way we're going to find unity and, and again, humility and these things that really are the hallmarks of who Jesus is. Um, now, in, that, wasn't in the P, that was in the PCOSA, so the, this whole idea of the mind of Christ was not quite as clear in that denomination as it is in ours as the first order of business for us. But, but for them, it was like, can we just get to the business? And we had to really work through, and that took a, a couple of years actually to kind of work through the session as people rotated on and off and got used to the new expectations that were being set. Um, and we'll talk about that uh, towards the end here, like what do you do with next steps, kind of where are you at and where do you go and some of those kinds of things. But yeah, I think, I think that's a big one, and I think it's probably our biggest challenge as pastors is how do you keep your really strong folks yeah. continuing to pursue Jesus passionately? Because uh, that's going to then spill out into um, the rest of your congregation for sure. Um, so what the way we do, so just kind of give you a scope of like how do we do this practically, like what does it look like at Pepsi? Um, that's what we call our church, Parker EPC. Um, well, we gather together on one, once a month and we begin with a meal together at, at six o'clock. And um, the first probably half hour, hour is just us fellowshipping together. It's us catching up how things gone over the last month, getting to, you know, how this going, how's that going, just people eating together, fellowshipping together, really probably modeled after Acts 2.42, right, where the early church gathered together for the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, the prayers, those kinds of things. That's essentially what we're doing. Typically in that time, our pastoral care, Pastor Gary McCuster, who is our associate pastor, teaching elder, he passes around our prayer list, like the things that he's been working on, like where are the needs of our congregation, what are people going through. We might add to that list, praises, prayers, those kinds of things. And then we wrap that time up up just with some time of prayer for each other, um, for some time of prayer with our congregation, those kinds of things. And, and that's typically around the first 45 minutes to an hour of our session meeting. Then, then we move kind of into about an hour to an hour and a half of usually Bible study or a, a, maybe we're studying a book. Like right now we're doing Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy. And so we're studying that, talking about spiritual formation, talking about how we are spiritually formed in this process. And that takes us for about, like I said, that discussion takes us about an hour, hour and a half. Um, and so we're usually now two and a half, maybe sometimes three hours into our meeting. So you're pushing now nine o'clock. Okay, and by that time, um, because we have spent time together in fellowship, we have spent time together in prayer, we have spent time together around God's word, um, what we find is that as we do turn ourselves to kind of like the, 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 the so, so to speak, the business of the church, um, the decisions that need to be made, by that time God has forged already a unity in our hearts and in our midst and a humility as we've come before Christ together so that the actual process of making the decisions that impact the life of our church goes very, very fast, half hour, 45 minutes at most. Um, and then we finish with prayer and then we head out the door and we have a little after party usually at a local bar and grab a drink together. And so sometimes session members, we're together for like five, six hours. And we just love hanging out together. That's the great thing about it. Like, that's not a chore for us. That's like, people are not like chomping at the bit to get out of there. People aren't like looking at their watches, like wondering, when is this thing going to end? Or, you know, Doug, this thing is really dragged out. I mean, no, it has been a real life-giving experience for folks. Um, they enjoy being with one another. They enjoy studying the Word together, enjoy praying together. Again, enjoy some of the conversations that we have. And then we enjoy, again, hanging out afterwards. Just, um, yeah, again, continuing to build those relationships and fellowshipping together. And again, one of the things that I look at, and I think, to myself, okay, so like, what what determines a success for a session? It's I, I pay very close attention to that. Like, are our folks really enjoying being together? That's a huge. That's a that's like number one on my list. <laughs> I mean, are, do we have a good time when we are together? If we're not having a good time when we're together, if this isn't life giving for folks, then that means we've got a problem. Yeah. Is this a weekly? No, it's once a month. Once a month. Mm -hmm. So it's more like a. 
Uh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, like I said, we end up the session. The meeting is usually scheduled for four hours once a month on a Wednesday, fourth Wednesday of the month. Like I said, because we go out afterwards, sometimes we might be there, be together for five or six hours. But um, depends on how much fun we're having. But um, uh, yeah, so that that's essentially what we do once a month. Um, once a quarter, what we try and do is I get together with each of my ruling elders one on one. And we spend, we spend time together, and it's, it's just about discipleship. What's God been talking to you about? What's He saying? How's your spiritual life? Where are you struggling? And we, we really share together. We pray for each other. And that, that continues to build that relational base from which our session meeting is kind of our natural outgrowth of that. Um, and we do that again. We try and do that once a quarter. Not always successful once a quarter, but, but do our best. So, so yeah. how many elders are there? Nine elders. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because you know, it was thirty of them. Huh? It, it would be different if it's thirty, and you know, and so again, goes goes back to some of your foundational questions, like, like how many elders should you have? Like, you know, in my opinion, um, there there's not a church on this planet that needs more than nine or ten. You just don't need you just don't need that many. Not unless you want them to manage the work of the church. I don't think that's the role of the elder. I think the role of the elder is to lead the church, not manage and do all the stuff. All right. Now they can involve and do stuff, but but they don't. That's not that why they're sitting around that table. They're there to seek the mind of Christ, not tell the now, not give information about how this program is going. And so that may be a different way to think about session than what you're used to. I'm just saying that that's 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 a fundamental sort of foundational conviction that I have. So yeah, it would look different. If it was 30, 30 folks. Yeah, Brian. Yeah, I'm, I really like that time commitment model for all the reasons you said, but I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. Is that self-selecting some demographics out? Like if you've got a real mature 35 or 38-year-old man, two-income family, yep. kids. Uh, so does, does that naturally affect, does it naturally lean towards certain demographics and try to other demographics out? It really doesn't. At Pepsi, we have an intergenerational session. We have two guys on there that are, how old's Paul and, Matt, how old's Paul and? 33. 30, 33. 33, both of them. Yeah, and professional guys. One's a lawyer in town. One is um, uh, an accountant. Uh, we, they're on the young side all the way up to, you know, we've had folks in their 60s, 70s, 80s, and all the way in between. Um, and so, no, it, 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 it doesn't seem to self-select out because, again, I find that people will make choices based on they'll prioritize the things that they find are life-giving. So if it's life-giving, they'll prioritize it. They, they'll, they would love to be a part of it. And we actually have a whole rash, and I'll talk about this in a little bit, uh, when we talk about recruitment, we have a whole rash of younger professional men and women who are like banging on the door wanting to be part of session. Mm-hmm. Wanting to be part of session. Because they hear these stories about like how awesome it is and how much they want to be a part of it. And it's like the best small group in the church, essentially. And, and, and they, 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 they think that's really, really awesome. And so, um, so they want to be a part of it. So it's a huge, huge deal. And so, no, I don't find it self-selects out. The only, re- the only places that it self-selects out, again, is it, it depends on what you do. If what you do is not life-giving, if it's just going through the motions, if it's just mailing it in, if it's just reading reports, if that's, if that's your experience at session, I got, I, everybody wants to self-select out of that, in my experience. So, yeah, Rob? Do you have other teaching elders that are part of that? Uh huh. Gary McCusker in the back. Go ahead, wave your hand, Gary. Gary is a teaching elder. He's been at Pepsi for 25 years or something like that. Um, we joke about how, like, you know, the, the the mistakes I make, Gary cleans up my mess, which is uh, which is probably true on some level. That's why he's in charge of pastoral care. Um, and then Matt DePriest. Matt, raise your hand. Matt is our newly ordained worship arts pastor. Just got ordained as a teaching elder last month. But he's been sitting on session, having voice but not vote for a number of years. What six years now? So, um, yeah, so we have two other teaching elders on session. Uh, Will Freischlag, who's sitting next to Matt as a candidate, he'll be a teaching elder. He'll also be on session when he, when he uh, gets ordained. So, yeah, we have other teaching elders as well. So it does end up being a total of, you know, nine ruling elders. We now have three teaching elders. We'll have four, more t- four teaching elders uh, uh, at some point in time. So, but we, we, won't go any, we won't go any larger than nine ruling elders. Yeah? So you don't have any staff there? No, on purpose. Because, again, we're not there to manage the church. The staff manages the church. They do a great job. They're professionals at it. They, we talk a lot about how our elders lead, our staff implements. I don't want our elders implementing, and I don't want our staff leading. That's not their roles. So role definition is very, very critical here if you're going to create a spiritual community. Because you've got you to carve out the space for it. If you don't carve out the space for it, you're never going to get there. Okay, so you really have to have great role clarity in terms of what do you expect from your ruling elders and do they understand that? And what do you expect from your staff? 
All right, and if you're a church like I am now, where you have lots of staff, you want your staff to when, when I was at Overlook and I was the only staff member, same deal. It's just on a different size, that's all. Okay, so it's all scalable that way. We'll go here and then here. Now, whittle that down for, I'm the only staff. Uh-huh. So, uh, implementation versus leadership. Yeah, so if you're like at a staff like when I was at Overlook, I mean, I was the guy that did everything. Um, I had a, like a part-time secretary and a part-time music person. But beyond that, I, I pretty much was uh, kind of did everything. Now we had volunteers who would you know help organize events and stuff like that, but we didn't do that around session. And you didn't task session with doing roles that in a bigger church would be would, would, would fall to staff members. No, we purposely didn't do that because what I found yes, what I found was is that when you task elders with implementation roles, yeah. then that's all you're ever going to talk about because they they naturally feel competent doing that. Our ruling elders, my experience, ruling elders feel it's more difficult for them to lead spiritually. So they'll naturally lean into what they know, which is what they can do, versus, versus like prayer and being together to pray together and to really study the scriptures together and really learn how to spiritually lead others. That's a much more challenging exercise that a lot of our, at least my, again, my experience, some of you ruling elders here may, may feel differently, but my experience with the ruling elders I've served with, they just don't naturally find, they've never been trained on that. They're professionals in the world, and so implementation like, comes naturally and easy. So they're naturally going to go that direction, which means that the spiritual leadership then ends up suffering because they're going to default to program management. We'll go here. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, I ask you to flesh out more of the spiritual. If you're going to create this dichotomy mm -hmm. between spiritual leadership and implementation, right. uh, fill out that spiritual leadership more. Yeah, we'll talk about that in just a second. Yeah, go ahead. All right. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we can keep going. Go ahead, Bob. You want to do that? We'll go here. Just, Just two more, a couple more. Quick question. Mm -hmm. uh, how frequently do you have women elders cycling through this mix? Well, that we've always had women elders since I've been at Pepsi. So but Realistically, do you always have women cycling? Yeah, they've been on session the whole time I've been there. Okay. Right now we have three. Um, I mean, they cycle through two, three, sometimes one. I mean, it just okay. depends. Um, yeah, that's not, a, that's not an issue for us. So, okay, well, yeah. I'm thinking of it as yeah. Sometimes uh, it can self-select so that it, it's not a mixed session all the time. Yeah, like I said, our our sessions intentionally intergenerational and intentionally sort of we have mixed genders. So um, again, we don't set out necessarily like quotas or anything like that, but we just kind of go into the nominating cycle with that in mind, with that desire in mind, um, in terms of like where where do we want to take this? Where do we feel like the Lord wants to take this? Um, so, so let's go back then to the spiritual leadership question. Again, the, the primary role of an elder is to seek the mind of Christ. All right. So again, I don't know what kinds of things you guys are running into, but our church in Parker, Colorado, which is this fairly monolithic, although it's changing, community of conservative white republicanism, right? we, are all, we are dealing with very significant cultural change in our community. And you can't program your way into that, all right? You've got to lead your way into that. And you've got to really seek the mind of Christ for like, what, okay, what's our engagement going to be in this community? How are we going to engage around the issues of sexuality? How are we going to engage around the issues of race? How are we going to engage around the issues of um, these, these, the transgender stuff? And in Colorado, where um, our, our new governor and, and their legislature is pushing all kinds of stuff that is going to be present extreme challenges to the way that we do ministry in terms of restrictions and some of those kinds of things. Like we have to talk about that stuff and that's where we spend most of our time because that's spiritual leadership. All right, that's looking at what, what's happening in our culture, looking at the ways the Spirit is moving in our culture, looking at the challenges that are coming our way in our culture and actually getting prepared to equip our people to face that stuff. Like that's far more important than planning a church potluck. Right? It's far more important than whatever the, your, your weekly rhythm is. Now, your weekly rhythm helps shape and helps equip people, of course. But you've got the leaders of the church should be tackling those issues. Right? Should be talking about your community. How are these things impacting our community? Every week in our community, we have members of the LGBTQ community. Every, we have this growing population in Parker of international families, and they're starting to come to Pepsi, which means... We're starting to like experience this multiculturalism and we're starting to ask some really hard questions about like what's that going to do? How's that going to change our leadership style? How's that going to change our musical style? How's that going to change a lot of different things? 
We cannot just continue to do things the way that we've always done things because God is always doing a new thing in our community. We always have to be pushing ourselves as to how we're going to reach our community with the gospel in a faithful way. That's leadership. That's vision. That's what leadership is. That's what spiritual leadership is. That's what seeking the mind of Christ is. Um, is, is you're looking in your community and you're saying, God has planted us here. and He's planted us here for a reason. And our job is now to reach this group of people. Whatever mix or makeup that is, our job is to reach this group of people with the gospel. All right? And so, you know, what does it mean? Like in, in, in Douglas County, it's one, of the, 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 it's one of the wealthiest counties in the country, seventh richest county in the country. I mean, it sort of shifts between 5th and 7th. I mean, we're always right up there. And yet our rate of suicide and depression, especially among teenagers, is going through the roof. That's an issue. How do we deal with it? How is the church responding to that? That's spiritual leadership. It's looking at those kinds of things and saying, we don't want to be behind the curve on this stuff. We want to be on the front lines. And we will be on the front lines with our community, engaged, helping them seek Christ in this. Because they're dying out there and they don't have the answer. All right? We have the answer God calls us to. So that's what spiritual leadership is, you know, in a nutshell for me. That's what I'm talking about versus, like I said, the program management. Now, again, your programs will flow from that. But your elders set the vision, your elders lead, and then your staff or your volunteers implement. That's just how it is. If you spend most of your time talking about implementation, that's where you'll spend all your time. And then you can't deal with these other things. Okay? Yeah, Stephen? Yeah. Leading in a Presbyterian church, and I've always come from staff-driven church. Yeah. Where it sounds more like the elder function as a spiritual board of sorts. Yes. Uh, and yet, coming into Presbyterianism, I've seen that largely ruling elders historically in my church shared committees. Right. That's right. And it was driven through volunteerism. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it would come with packaged proposals yep. to approve by a committee. Yep. And so I'm trying to unlearn. Uh huh. Yeah. What you're. Some of what I'm wrestling from is mm-hmm. do I move the church from its historic approach? It's been doing this since the '40s to what I already know, or am I trying to adjust myself to Presbyterianism to learn how to lead? Right. So my my bias again maybe it's maybe it's right or wrong. You have to figure it out for your kind. My bias would say no. You you get them to change. We're not living in the 1940s anymore. So what you're describing, a committee system where um, your elders ran committees that ran the programs of the church and they would come to the session with those things prepackaged and you know, put them in there for approval and stuff like that. That worked great in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s when Christendom, this sort of like all the, you know, all the stuff that was happening in our culture really was set up to support the church. No activities on Sundays. No activities on Wednesday night. I, when I ministered down south, they still had vestiges of this, right? Where Wednesday night was church night, so you didn't have sports programs. All right, well, in Denver, they have sports programs 24-7. Like, they don't, they don't really care about the church at all, right? It's not set up for our success. We've lost sort of home field advantage in that respect, whereas we used to enjoy it. Everything used to be closed on Sundays, like all of that. So in that context, sure, like maybe you are just running programs. Maybe that's what leadership looks like in that context. It's, it's not that way anymore. There are so many issues at stake. This is why I tell churches that I consult with, you, you, can, you cannot be having arguments about church music anymore. Like, literally people are going to hell while we're arguing about instrumentation. Come on now. Like, there's just too much at stake here. Right? So we, we've got to get beyond that stuff. Got to get beyond whether we like this program or that program or we've always done it this way. And we've got to get into these spaces where we are on the cutting edge answering questions the culture is asking. All right, my daughter, and you know, she's, she's out and proud, so everybody knows this about this in my church. And my daughter is a lesbian. She's 20 years old. And she is engaged in the LGBTQ community. And she and I have all kinds of conversations about what, what does it mean for the church to move into that space while holding fast to the gospel? And to, and to biblical views of human sexuality. And oh, by the way, I helped write the position paper for the EPC on that issue. So she and I go round and round on that. We have a great relationship. But we talk at length about those things. The church should be on the forefront of that conversation. But what's the, what's the attitude of the LGBTQ community when it comes to the church? Well, it's hyper-negative. And it's because they have all kinds of reasons to be so. We, we refuse to deal with it, by and large. Refuse to acknowledge it by and large. We struggle with it. Like that, 
This, the race issue, same deal. We should be on the forefront of these cultural currents providing gospel-centered answers. These are the questions, and we have the answer. These are the questions our culture is asking. They're not going to find the answer doing the things that they're doing, okay? Or it's they're going to find answers, but they're the wrong answers. They're going to lead to destruction. We don't have time for what color should the carpet be, or should people bring coffee into our sanctuary, or what style of music do we... We, just, we don't have time for those things anymore. And we probably really never did. We just got into them. Yeah, Stefan, we'll, we'll follow up in the... We'll up yeah. Yeah. It's very provoking. What are the minimal committees that a church does require to run? Like, so do you have any committees that report to session? Or you've done away with all committees? Everything is the top down the stage. Yeah, so we still have a mission team because we don't have enough money to hire a missions pastor. So we have a, a team of volunteers that run all of our mission stuff. Okay. And they report. We have an admin team. They kind of handle, and it's all elders. I mean, they... they yeah, they handle like personnel. They handle like the in-between business of the church kind of stuff that you have to handle in between session meetings. And we have a nominating committee. Just those three. Yeah. And everything else is captured. Uh-huh. Thank you. And, and oh, by the way, like I did this at a small church too. Like we got rid of committees. Just empower people to do the work. They don't need to meet, like except to organize. Like they, they don't need to like spend their time like sitting down and putting together like committee minutes and like, no, just go do the work. Like, Go do the work. We'll empower you to go do the work. We'll give you whatever budget we can. Go do the work. Like you don't need to like, like you don't need a deacon's uh, uh, board. Just empower deacons to go be deacons. Let them go be deacons. They do a great job. You know. So I think sometimes we get caught up thinking like we have to have all this machinery in the system. In fact, it's there's probably a whole lot less than we realize that we actually need. We'll go here and then here and then we'll keep we'll keep moving. Yeah, we took three to four months to make that transition just this last year mm -hmm. in September. That came out of. Yeah, do it well. Yeah. yeah, but boy, it was it, it went very smoothly. It's awesome. From some other churches' mistakes in the process, which was helpful. It's great. But I would just encourage, you know, if you think how could we ever get out of that mindset? Yeah, you've got to change the culture, but it can be done, and uh, it's we are just thrilled. Yeah, people love serving. Yeah. They don't love committee work, but they love serving. So just turn them loose, let them serve. Yeah, go ahead. Staff don't have to be paid. Correct. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we box ourselves in on all kinds of stuff. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah, there's all kinds of different ways to do this. I mean, I remember when I was in Mobile, again, that was a PCSA church. And so because we really wanted to, um, like, create so much, like, enough role clarity that everybody kind of in the congregation understood, um, we, when we did our nominating process, what we did was we nominated elders and we had a very, this very specific role. They were to be the spiritual leaders. We nominated deacons, and they were to be the, the servants. And this, this church had never had deacons before, so that was like a new thing. They were monocameral, right? So the elders had, had to do the work of the deacons and the spiritual leadership and all the program management. So you can imagine how exhausting it was to be an elder in that system, right? So we had six elders, and then we had six deacons, and then we created like a... Um, we created a, a, a non-ordained position, but took them through the same nominating process to give them the same kind of credibility with our congregation, and that was uh, committee chair. And we just said, you guys are going to run all the programs. You guys have gifts in these areas. This is what you guys love to do. You love to run programs. You're great at it. We're going to empower you. We're going to, like, pseudo-ordain you. I mean, I was really skirting the edge of the Book of Order there, but, but we, you know, we're going to pseudo-ordain you in the same way we ordain our elders to be spiritual leaders and our deacons to be servant leaders. We're going to ordain you guys to be the program leaders of the church. And it was awesome. So now all of a sudden we went from a session, unicameral, of like 12 that we could never get enough people for, always fighting to get warm bodies on that thing because they were having to do so much work to actually 18 people. And we couldn't, like, again, people started banging down the doors. Because there was role clarity. They understood, like, oh, like, I do feel like I have gifts for this. And I do feel like I have gifts for this. And I do feel like I have gifts for this. And when I sign up for this, or when I'm nominated for this, you're not going to ask me to do this and these other things that I don't feel gifted at. 
you're going to ask me to do the things that I'm gifted at. And I love doing the things that I'm gifted at for the Lord. And so it's very empowering. That was at, again, an 80-person church. You know, everybody was over the age of 65 when I got there. I had the only kids, right? I mean, they were a dying church. They told me that. When I my first elder meeting with them, I was like, you know, here I am, this young pastor at a seminary, and they're like, and I'm like, well, where do you guys see yourselves in like 10 years? And they're like, yeah, with a for sale sign out front. And I'm like, that would have been great to know during the interview process. <laughs> like, that would have been super helpful. But okay, we're in this together, and I'm not, I didn't come here to close the church. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that we had to work on. Um, and again, maybe you're in that experience, or maybe you're not. But I think those are just some things to think about. So one of the key things, I think, that you run into when you start to go down this road is how are you going to make decisions? What's your decision-making apparatus? Is it parliamentary procedure, consensus model, all of those kinds of things? Like, that's a huge piece of this. Basically, how are you going to handle um, conflict when it occurs? Um, again, I don't know about you, but I love, I love it when our session members get into it. Like, that, that's success. Again, I want to see our session members really go after it. Not be mean to each other, of course, or nasty, but just really be passionate about what they believe. And so we, we, we try and foster an environment where that happens. But when I first got to Pepsi, I'd always come from a system where they had done parliamentary procedure. So I just assumed they did parliamentary procedure. And within literally the first two months I was there, um, we had a decision facing us, and it went like 6-4. Uh, and, and I'm thinking, okay, well, whatever. Like, it went 6-4. That's just how it works. Like, parliamentary procedure, right? Oh, my gosh. Like, the next morning, I come into a voicemail, and one of my elders is just dressing me down. Like, we cannot make decisions like this. And so, the very early on in my tenure at Pepsi, we had to have a conversation about, okay, so if it's not parliamentary procedure, what is it going to be? And let's all be united around what decision-making apparatus that we're going to use. Let's make sure we're all on the same page so that we're all um, working together on this. And so what we landed on was this sort of consensus model of sorts. Um, it's not true consensus in that we, uh, we don't have any problem if, if, if someone fundamentally doesn't agree. Um, but at the same time, we try and speak with one voice. Again, we believe that the mind of Christ is undivided. And so we spend a lot of time in prayer. If we have a, a divided session on an issue, we'll spend a tremendous amount of time in prayer seeking the unity that Christ promises us in John 17. And essentially what we, where it comes down to is we just ask folks like, who are on maybe two sides of the issue, is this an opinion or is this a conviction? We ask them to differentiate. Is it an opinion or a conviction? Because if the conviction is from the Holy Spirit, if it's an opinion, it may be a good opinion, but it's your opinion. And if it's an opinion, are you willing to submit it? Maybe you submit it to the will of the majority, or maybe you submit it to the will of the minority. We've had that happen too. All right? Because at the end of the day, we want to make this decision with unity. Not unanimity necessarily, but unity. Now, it takes a lot of time. And we give our elders full permission that if they are not settled, if they don't feel a, settle, a settledness in their soul about it, that they can, they can stop the business and, and we'll have to come back to it next month. All right? And so one of the, one of the cool stories, uh, and you have all these cool, miraculous stories. Because I don't know how else you, you, you get these cool stories unless you approach it like this. Because if you just do parliamentary procedure, then it's whoever has the most votes wins. Um, so I remember one of my first, uh, again, the first year we were there, uh, Bob Meyer, who has been a ruling elder at Pepsi forever, and uh, some of these guys know Bob Meyer. Bob Meyer is like the historic bean counter in our church, like the most conservative accountant, like counts every dollar, every penny, right, Gary? And, um, and I mean, he is, he, that's just his reputation, that's his history. So we, we were, um, it was my first year there, Pepsi was struggling, we were in the red, um, you know, not sure where the money's going to come from, all that kind of stuff. GA that year was at Cherry Hills, and all of our missionaries were coming into town, right, from all over the world, like they do, and... And our missions team asked if Pepsi would be willing to set aside money from a morning offering to give, contribute to our missionaries. And um, they wanted 10% of our morning offering, which again, we were just like, oh, we don't know, like we're in the red. Like, you know, we start, we start talking about all this stuff and we're anxious and we're nervous and we're all these other things. And um, so we're, we're coming to a vote and no one is settled in the room at all. And so, um, but, but everybody's kind of like, well, maybe this is, you know, maybe this step of faith, we're just not sure. So we go to prayer and we come out of prayer and everybody's like, yeah, okay, I, I think God's calling us to do this. I think we'll take this step of 10%. And Bob Meyer, of all people, said, no, we've got to give a whole morning offering away. And of course, everybody in the room went, 
<laughs> oh, man. But because it was Bob Meyer, everybody's like, wow. And so then we had to go to more prayer, right? Because we're not so sure. I mean, 10% was hard enough. But a whole morning offering, like losing a whole Sunday offering, like we are not sure about that. And so because of the voice of one elder in that conversation, the Spirit brought unity around that decision. We started talking to our congregation about it because we still had a few weeks before General Assembly. It was unbelievable in our congregation. We had people selling property and jewelry and all kinds of things to contribute to this special offering that we were going to take on this particular Sunday. It was our largest offering of the year, you know, which again, kind of you're like, oh, we can really use that, <laughs> you know, and, uh, uh, and we gave it away. And, and it was awesome to watch God use, again, one person around our session table, around a, an, a sticky issue when it comes to finances. And lead our church into this new season. Like from that year forward, our budget has increased every single year. And I trace it back to Bob Meyer, who heard from the Spirit in a time of prayer that we weren't just to give 10%, but we were just to give the whole thing away. We believe that God has really honored that. You don't get those kinds of stories, at least in my experience, when you talk about parliamentary procedure. Because, again, it's just up-down. It's just however many houses of votes. And so it, it's only when you really pursue the unity of the Spirit that these things take place. So you've got to figure out what the decision-making model that you're going to use. And I would encourage you, think about it biblically. Don't think about it organizationally. We tend to think way too organizationally about our session meetings and not biblically enough. All right, and so I just want to challenge you with that. And I know we have been blessed as we have sought to really align ourselves with Scripture. And it's been really amazing um, just to see God, again, come to us over and over again and, and meet us in, in these spaces. It's just been beautiful. Um, so there's just some practicalities. Um, and then, like I said, I want to leave probably the last half hour, 45 minutes for questions. But um, some real practicalities. Where does all this start? It's got to start in your nominating process. When you go through your nominating process, that's where you have the opportunity to really set the expectations for what an elder, what role an elder is going to play. Okay, and so you have the, you have the great opportunity right from that, from the, from the get-go, to help people understand what is this all about? What is it we're really going after? So at Pepsi, we have two session elders that lead our nominating committee. And I will tell you that in my experience, and Jim's actually led one of our nominating cycles, but I, from my experience, my observations, I'm not involved in it, I just sort of watch from the outside in. They treat that group, that nominating committee group, um, they do more discipleship with them than really anything else probably. They lead them in prayer. They lead them in reflection on Scripture and what are the qualifications of elders. They go really deep into people's lives. They interview prospective elders. They don't just sort of look for warm bodies. I mean, there's an in-depth interview that is done. Um, there's an incredible amount of prayer, again, dedicated to this process. And it's because the two ruling elders that are, coming, that are currently sitting on session understand what these folks are walking into and they want from the very outset to kind of lay this groundwork, lay, you know, that, that, that everybody understands what it is that we're going after here. And our session elders have done a great job of that, bringing people on who are spiritually mature, who really have a passion for these things, who have a heart for these things, so you don't end up with, a, with kind of a, a, you know, that one person who's going to stymie everything because they don't like what's going on. You know, or that one person who's going to be that stick in the mud that just, you know, drives a wedge between, you know, you, got, you can't have that, right? So your nominating process has got to be robust enough to where you're able to identify those folks who may be walking in with an agenda other than to seek the mind of Christ, who may be walking in with some issues other than seeking the mind of Christ, who may not even be mature enough to seek the mind of Christ. We had a guy on session a few years back who by his own admission, here's a guy who is a two-star general in the Air National Guard, amazing leader. And by his own admission, when he got on session, he told me, and he told our session, he was like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ready. I, I, like, I shouldn't be around this table. I'm not spiritually mature enough. And then his, uh, he was a pilot, and so his plane got shifted to Houston, and so he ended up rotating off early just because of his job change. But he, he said to the session very vulnerably, like, I, did, I was very successful <laughs> in the world. I was a two-star general. I went to his retirement ceremony. The Joint Chiefs of Staff were there. Like, they were talking about like a serious dude. And he said, what we're doing around this table, I am not equipped for. And that was awesome for him to be that vulnerable and that willing to kind of relinquish. And then again, when the opportunity came and it was time for him to step off, he just let that go and it was no problem. Um, that was a real blessing. But you're, you want your nominating process to hopefully catch that on the front end so that they don't feel like they're being put in a position where they're not equipped to succeed. 
All right. And so sometimes someone you might look at and go, man, this person would be awesome to have on session. They actually get into this and they realize, boy, they are really outside their comfort zone. They're outside their skill set. And so you have to be able to identify those things. The nominating process is a key piece of that. Are the qualifications and expectations in written form uh -huh. like a job description? Uh, yeah, I don't think we have like it quite a like a, job. yeah, yeah, essentially. I don't think we have it quite in a job but description it form, but out. it's spelled out, right, Jim? Yeah. Yeah, and we just we take mainly the qualifications right out of Timothy and Titus, yeah, of course, and then and then there's some you know we, we we talk about like what is it what is it mean to be an elder here at Pepsi yeah, some of the exactly. specifics of that, um, but our nominating process they do a great they do a great job of really vetting our candidates spiritually, and so again you want to set those expectations right up front so that you're not pulling a bait and switch or people don't feel like they're being baited and switched into something. Yeah, Ken. The ABC Leadership Guide has a great uh, yep. section on uh, elder qualifications and responsibilities. Uh, my question to you, Doug, would be in the nominating process, do you have veto power? Yeah, so that's a tricky one, Ken. Um, the reality is what, what happens is, so the, yeah, just to kind of dive into our process, our team begins meeting in August. They begin soliciting um, nominations from the congregation, um, from the staff, from, you know, from everybody, right? They get those pool of candidates, they pray over those candidates, they start to stack rank them a bit. And then usually they pass them on to Gary and I. And the, the goal for Gary and I here is obviously not to sort of, um, you know, fill the session with people that we like, as much as it is if there is something confidential that we know that's going on in that person's life past, from a pastoral perspective, we will exercise veto power. But that's the only reason we exercise veto power. Other than that, we really try our best, and Gary and I kind of hold each other accountable on this, to, to not like let our agenda get in the way. Because I'm a sinner, and I mean, my agenda can totally get in the way. So you know, Gary and I do have that. Um, but again, we only will, will veto for, again, confidential pastoral, uh, pastoral reasons. Yeah. So, yeah. Just elders on this other folks in the congregation. Yeah, so we have two elders that lead it, but no, we have other folks in the congregation. We have deacons, we have uh, folks for, you know, who are nominated kind of at large. Again, one of our core values at Pepsi is intergenerational. Um, we want to be intergenerational in everything we do, from the session all the way out to the edges of the congregation. And so the nominating committee is specifically intergenerational. We recruit to it. We want to make sure that the people that are on that committee really are a nice, wide representation of our congregation so that, you know, we're not, we're not losing people or getting, people aren't getting lost in the shuffle or the same group of people is getting nominated over and over and over again, right, because all their friends are part of that process. We really work hard at that, at uh, making sure we have a diversity on there. So, yeah. Just kind of on that, how, how low do you go on age-wise for intergenerational? Would you have, like, a college student on there? If a high schooler was a member, could they be on the committee like that? Sure. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if the, the qualifications got to be spiritual maturity. Yeah. Spiritual maturity. I mean, I was nominated for, to be a ruling elder when I was 24 um, at First Pres in Boulder, which is a big mega church in Boulder, and um, that was in the beginning of the PCUSA, and that was very humbling and very honoring. It, it's... It, it's you know, too often I think we associate spiritual maturity with age. I think a lot of times that's the case, but it's not always the case. And so spiritual maturity is the key. And 